0: A mind is a terrible thing to waste. You cannot define yourself in reference to other external coordinates. You must define yourself internally with your relationship with a higher entity. Stop
1: it! I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes! S-G-O-P, New word, I-T. This week on Mind Matters. It's time to turn down the noise and listen to what really matters. Join counselor and author Rita Schulte and me, Richard Beatty, in renewing your mind because your mind matters. So come on in and join us.
0: And if there's anybody out there saying sin, how negative, how primitive, you believe in sin. Well, look, anybody that's concerned with what's wrong with us anybody who's concerned about cruelty and oppression, anybody who's concerned about, anybody who's coming here saying, why can't I be what I aspire to be? Why can't I ever achieve what I want to achieve? You're struggling with sin. And there's really nothing particularly hopeless about it. Now, I'm not saying there aren't churches that take the doctrine of sin and beat people over the head to make them feel hopeless. But there's nothing hopeless and negative about talking about human sin. Carl Menninger, a very, very mainstream psychiatrist, uh, he was um, you know, a member of the Aspen Institute, of humanistic studies, I mean, he's quite mainstream, by no means a traditionalist or anything like that. But he wrote a book in the 1970s that really shocked a lot of people. He called it uh, "Whatever Happened to Sin?" Some of you may have seen it. I'm sure it's probably still still available. But in there, he, for example, in this book, he starts out like this. He says he calls for a, quote a revival. He calls for a revival of the conscious sense of of guilt and of repentance. In short, I call for a revival of sin. What would be the good of that, you ask? Why do we need more breast beaters? Why not a no-fault theology? No one to blame. Things just happen. Whoops. Alas. But here's why. The assumption that there is sin implies both a possibility and an obligation for intervention. We want to help ourselves and others, and hence sin is the only hopeful view. When evil appears around us and no one is responsible, no one is guilty, no moral questions are asked then there is in short nothing to do. So we sink to despairing hopelessness. Therefore, the consequence of my proposal for a revival of the consciousness of sin would not be more depression, but less.
1: That's an excerpt from a sermon at the church in Times Square from Pastor Tim Keller. That was back in 1998. Today on Mind Matters, Rita Schulte and I will be discussing a bit of worldview thinking and a vaccine for the human condition based on sin. Hello everyone, it's Richard Beatty, and today on Mind Matters, Rita Scholte and I speak with Dr. Edwin W. Lutzer, the pastor emeritus of the Moody Church, where he served as a pastor for 36 years, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and Loyola University. He's the author of numerous books, including the Gold Medallion Award winner, Hitler's Cross, and the bestseller, One Minute after you die. He is a teacher on radio programs heard on more than 700 stations throughout the United States and the world, including Songs in the Night, the Moody Church Hour, and the daily feature Running to Win. He and his wife, Rebecca, live in the Chicago area and have three married children and eight grandchildren. Dr. Lutzer, welcome to Mind Matters.
2: I'm so glad to be with you today, and I thank God for your ministry and for all that we are trying to do together to make a difference for the glory of God.
3: Amen. And I am so excited to talk to you. I feel like you're like a modern-day Jeremiah, right? Just sounding the the gong, wake up the culture, and asking the church to stand firm for such a time as this.
2: Well, you know, we live at a time when the church oftentimes doesn't know exactly what to do, because on the one hand, we want to appear loving and accepting. And so in doing that, they totally avoid the culture. On the other hand, there are those who only speak about the culture and uh, they emphasize what they're against, which is fine. But even there, the gospel can be uh confused and you have such issues as social justice which we can discuss everyone should be involved in justice but the problem is that all theories of justice have a world view that backs them up and we can talk about that but what i mean to say is oftentimes therefore the church lives in a bubble unwilling to face the culture But the congregation can't help but face the culture because they're sending their kids to school. Their kids are always on the cell phone and uh, the culture is all around us. And you apply for a job today. You'll probably be asked whether or not you're comfortable with all the different gender issues and so forth. So there's no way to really avoid it.
3: Yeah, it tears at my soul and just FYI to all our listeners Dr. Lutzer's written many books today we're talking about this is your newest one right we will not be silenced yes uh, I read a nation when a nation forgets god seven common uh, seven lessons that must be learned from Nazi Germany that was phenomenal it's a short read i i just recommend that so highly to everyone this book is just another amazing work and how you frame all this is Oh, it's just so my heart. And so can you tell us a little bit about the book and why you decided to
2: write it? Now, which book are we talking about? We will not will not be
3: silenced.
2: I wrote this book, Rita, because I began to realize that the radical left in America does not believe that America can be fixed. It really has to be destroyed and rebuilt on an entirely different foundation. So what I show is You know, classical Marxism was the destruction of the economy. We, of course, saw that in Russia and in China Revolution. Cultural Marxism says we can accomplish the same thing if we attack the culture. And if we do it incrementally, bit by bit, it can all be brought about, and it can be done so, and people will see the value the tremendous value of socialism and Marxism. So what I do in the book, We Will Not Be Silenced, is I point out that this influences our view of history, the destruction of monuments, and it's not just Confederate monuments, but even Abraham Lincoln, because you must understand that that is an attack not just against race, it's an attack against the legitimacy of America,
3: and our history
2: and on our history so we have that our history is totally weighted against us and the good parts are left out and then i apply it to race because uh alinsky here in chicago realized he was a marxist of course he realized that it could be applied to race and you could have perpetual conflict in the races And so what you have is the oppressed and the oppressors. So he took Marxist economic theory and really applied it to race. Of course, we have critical race theory, which intentionally is not intended to bring the races together, but to constantly tear them apart. So those are the kinds of issues. And then I show how Marxism even influences such things as freedom of speech, because Marx taught, and modern Marxists do, that if we allow freedom of speech, the capitalists will always win the argument, and therefore what we must do is to say it's time for you to be quiet and only the oppressed can speak. So I show how this goes into the schools and so forth. So the reason I wrote the book is to show how that cultural Marxism underlies all of these battles. And so, as you mentioned, the title of the book is We Will Not Be Silenced.
3: Well, I think it permeates every level of the culture, for sure. And for me, my biggest thing was, gee, it seems like this landslide, because I was reading a couple days ago in the book about the monuments, and that's always been, oh, my gosh, I want to just explode about the monuments. But There's a way deeper reason for all this. This this has been planned. And when I read your piece about uh, Margaret Sanger in the book, and I want you to talk about that for a minute, this is this went back to like the 1920s. I mean, she was the the one that rolled out Planned Parenthood and there was a set agenda with women, right? Uh, 1920. And if we can get uh, women uh, and a new race uh, where she predicted that the rebellion of women would remake the world, she wasn't stupid. And that's really we've seen that for years and years.
2: Exactly. And feminism, of course, destroying the family. But more than that, and of course, you know that she is a hero to Planned Parenthood. Oh, even.
3: without question.
2: Eugenics, even eugenics, though she yes. Was eugenics and so forth. And so she is that hero. But more than that, we can even begin to see the seeds of what we call the transgender movement, even way back then. And, uh, what we can do is to trace that history and show that we're living in a time when the self has triumphed and the silly idea that you can be whatever you want to be. And so you are a man, if you wanna be a woman, you can be a woman, whatever your self perception tells you you are. And we can also talk about that. So what you have is really, Rita, is a collapsing culture around us. And it's falling in on us And only if you are living in a bubble, do you think that you can avoid it? And of course, in some sense, those of us who are older, who are kind of semi-retired, though I'm busier than ever, uh, we can kind of avoid it, but our children can't, and certainly our grandchildren grandchildren can't. And so that's what we have to do. We have to teach people where the line should be drawn and how to stand against the culture.
3: So what do you say to people, because I know plenty of them that think all of this stuff we're talking about is just conspiracy theory? Oh, you are you guys are overreacting, Uh, you know, kidding me. Seven lessons we have to learn from Nazi Germany that this has really been an intentional and deliberate assault on the hearts and minds of this culture and primarily how they do that, you know, referencing that book, When a Nation Forgets God, is by getting the minds of kids at a very young age. Hey, look what we got now in schools.
2: Oh, yes. In both books, actually, I think I quote Hitler, who says he who controls the youth controls the future. And all of us know that's absolutely true. And what modern education wants to do is to separate the authority of the parents from the child because they believe that when it comes to sexuality they believe it's very important that um parents that that the training of children sexually is too important a job to be left to the parents so the school has to do it and um since we're talking about, you know, you're interested, Rita, in a sound mind, obviously, here's what happens. Children in the classroom are told, if you don't like your body, it may be because of your trans." Well, if we remember back to our teenage days Every one of us looked into the mirror and wondered where God was when we were put together. (laughs) So we all had struggles with our body, right? It's
3: part of adolescence.
2: It's part of adolescence. And you don't like yourself. So what you do is you add to this the whole issue of guilt. Because when children are, uh, you know, taught that they could be transgender, when they are taught sexuality... And uh, I have a book that is used here in the state of Illinois, which is basically pornography for 10-year-olds. When they are taught that, they have a sense of guilt because there's something within them that tells them this is not the way it's supposed to be. But they're told, oh, yes, it's normal. So a child is confused. And in his confusion, he thinks, you know, maybe I'm trans. Right. Well, the answer is no, you're not trans. And that is not the solution to your problem. So we're in a cultural stream. You know, in my book on Nazi Germany that you referenced, um, you know, When a Nation Forgets God, I have a chapter on propaganda. And I also have a, prop- a chapter on propaganda in We Will Not Be Silenced. But what you want to do is to create a cultural stream that is so powerful that nobody will stand against it. Hitler believed that if you have a hundred thousand people in an arena, as they had in Nuremberg, all shouting the same slogan, nobody will have the nerve to disagree. And if they do disagree, they have to do so in silence. And so We have these cultural streams. At one time, it was homosexuality, but we've moved beyond that now to transgenderism. And, uh, you know, the cultural stream of socialism and so forth, the cultural stream of the whole equality agenda, which is a word that is so grossly misused today. You have these cultural streams and woe to the person who actually stands against it. And yet, if I might quote the words of Booker T. Washington, he said that wrong doesn't become right. Evil doesn't become good just because the majority believe it. And we need to recognize that.
3: Well, the other thing is, you know, you're labeled as a hater.
2: Yes. And (laughs) the reason for that is What you have is the belief that if you can shame a person and call them a hater, you've won the argument. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, Rita, that when people resort to that, they're actually confessing they've lost the argument. What they are saying is, I cannot let my ideas stand in the midst of a discussion. So what I'll do is I'll use a label you're a hater. So if you're anti-abortion, you hate women. If you are, if you believe in strong borders like I do, you're a racist. So what they try to do is to move it from a discussion of ideas to a, to a, what they try to do is to move it from a discussion of ideas to, shame to a psychological you. state. Mm-hmm. So you disagree with me? see a psychiatrist. Let me give you an example. there are some universities that have speech codes. Uh, you know it's inappropriate to call somebody a freshman. it's inappropriate to refer to policeman. It's inappropriate and I'm quoting here from one of the university websites where it actually says that if you have a uh, barbershop in your area don't say that he takes walk-ins, because you might offend those who can't walk. After all, there are those in wheelchairs. (sighs) Here's the question that we have to answer. Why are these speech codes given in university? Is it to elevate the debate? No, it's to silence the debate. Students are so intimidated, they don't know whether or not they can say a straightforward, uh, straightforward sentence. Is it okay if you go into a restaurant? Can you still ask for a menu? Uh, What about policemen? That's actually another banned word. So what do you use instead? That's why a majority of Christian students say that they actually censor themselves and remain silent because they don't know what's appropriate. And the whole goal is to so limit what's appropriate to say that eventually you are limiting what it's appropriate to think. And remember, the goal is always ideological conformity. And so that's why those speech codes are given. Students are intimidated. They don't know what in the world. I mean, can you still go for a manicure? <laughs> if, Gosh, no. if you can't use the word master bedroom, which also is prohibited, then the question becomes, can you say that somebody has mastered a certain discipline? But mm. well, you don't know. You don't right. know what's appropriate. So just be quiet.
1: And then and then if you don't agree with us, then we can cancel you. Uh, canc- cancel culture is uh, is the big uh, uh, catchphrase right now. And and that's the fear, isn't it? Yes. Uh, censorship.
3: Well, here's here's me with my always mental health hat on. I love what you say in the book uh, about this study. I'm just going to read this. The Effect of Early Sexual Activity on Mental Health is a 2018 report that evaluated 28 studies of peer reviewed medical literature from 1966 to the present. Researchers found that early sexual debut increased levels of depression, Suicidal ideation, aggressive behavior, psychological distress, anxiety, stress, loneliness, poor well-being, regret and guilt. It also increased negative social behavior, such as substance abuse and risky sexual behavior. Well, what I'm seeing as a counselor, and this is big buzzword, is this whole idea of loneliness and disconnection with not just the elderly anymore. It is rampant with kids You have suicide, the second leading cause of death for 10. To 20 year olds, 24 year olds, the second leading cause of death, a 10 year old is going to take their life. Something is very, very wrong here.
2: Yeah. And of course, that's also because of guilt and self-hatred, which is taught in our schools today. I heard about an eight year old boy who was crying because he thought he, he was going to become a girl. So what you want to do is to sow the seeds of confusion. Confusion is very important in education today because confused children, confused children can be easily led. And so what you want to do is to confuse them in such a way that they will eventually uh, go your direction. And the funny thing is, uh, you know, educators say, Oh, we want you to make up your own mind regarding these things. But actually, the curriculum makes up their mind for them. Mm -hmm. And the main thing that they are saying is don't go with your parents, the church or the Bible. You listen to us and we're the ones that are going to control you. You also raised another issue, Rita, which is really something that no other generation has ever faced. And that is the loneliness brought about because of social media. No other generation has had social media. So I remember walking into a camp area. There were four or five teenagers sitting there. Not one of them was talking to each other. They were all on their cell phones. And one of the points I make make in the book, we will not be silenced, is that we must recognize that today, Parents do not raise their children, the culture does. And the cell phone in your teenager's hand does more to inform his or her worldview than going to church for an hour or Sunday school or Bible reading. So that's what we're up against, and parents have to recognize that and seek God for wisdom as to how to stand against this, because we're living at a time when those pressures are so huge. And if you get all your information from social media, we also have to teach young people that social media is not uh, wisdom and information is not necessarily wisdom. And so we need to go back to the book of Proverbs where it emphasizes the need for wisdom, and that is to make wise judgments. And information itself doesn't help you do that.
1: This is Richard Beatty, and uh, you're listening to Mind Matters Radio. Rita Schulte and I are speaking with Dr. Edwin Lutzer about his new book. And next week, uh, Dr. Lutzer continues on true racial reconciliation, among other current and lingering issues. That's next week on Mind Matters. We'd love to hear from you. Go to RitaSchulte.com to get in touch and get on the e-letter list for Mind Matters Radio. Our theme tomorrow sky was composed and performed by jazz guitarist the late Kellis etheridge mind matters is a crawford original radio program produced by sound century productions thank you for listening
0: You cannot define yourself in reference to other external coordinates. You must define yourself internally with your relationship with a higher entity.
1: Stop it! I'm sorry? Stop, Stop it! Stop it? Yes! S-T-O-P, new word, IT! This week on Mind Matters. It's time to turn down the noise and listen to what really matters. Join counselor and author Rita Schulte and me, Richard Beatty, in renewing your mind because your mind matters. So come on in and join us.
3: Denver is dialed in to the mighty 670.